Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. To seven. So we're jumping in. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, <clears throat> starting in verse 1. It says this, who's like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. I say keep the king's command because of God's oath to him, but be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although a man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There's no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to hurt his heart. Verse 10, then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place uh, and were praised in the city uh, where they had done such things. This is also vanity because the sentence against an evil man is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this is also vanity and I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful for this will go uh, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Verse 16, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God uh, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out, even though a wise man claims to know He cannot find it out. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that you would do your work in us. Uh, Ecclesiastes is your uh, word of wisdom to us in an untethered, unchained, and seeking world. Lord, help us be those who are not chasing wind, but see you, that receive fulfillment and joy and our meaning and peace in your hands and in what you've given. Lord, would you do your work? We pray that in your name and that you would be glorified here. Amen. So imagine with me for uh, just a minute going to the infamous uh, Dr. Sheldon Cooper from Big Bang Theory. Uh, I'm assuming that you've heard of the show. If not, the central figure of it is a scientist and researcher graduated from a prestigious university with an advanced degree probably before he had an armpit hair. Right, so this dude was young, absolutely off the charts, genius as far as knowledge and information went, but he was simultaneously absolutely clueless when it came to human interaction. So imagine you go to Sheldon with me, and you're going to ask Sheldon for some advice specifically on if you should ask your girlfriend to marry you, and if you should, when you should do it. And imagine if you went to Sheldon for this type of question, he would start 
uh, spitting out empirical and statistical data to you about maybe 82% of women want to be married before this age, so you kind of have that going for you. And 79% of women would say yes to a man with a full head of hair and good genes, so that's kind of going for you. Uh, and if you have a job and you've dated for over two fortnights, there's a, a three-quarters chance that she's going to say yes. And he would probably start talking about desire for reproduction. And then if you've watched the show, he would say something offensive on top of that because that's what he does. He'd probably use some sort of uh, data about a woman's cycle to tell you the proper day to ask as well. Right? This is how Sheldon operates. It wouldn't be very helpful to you for the real question on how to navigate in your real life, that type of scenario. Because Sheldon wouldn't be helpful because he has a lot of knowledge, but he, here's the end. He doesn't have very much wisdom, though. There's a lot of data that he has, a lot of information, but he doesn't really know what to do with that, and that's what makes us laugh about the show. No, uh, knowledge is acquiring of information, which some call maybe science, in general, data or knowledge consists of facts, percentages, X's and O's. It's just raw information, but wisdom is a little bit different than that. Wisdom knows what to do with the knowledge and the raw information. Wisdom is the ability to interpret, what do I do next? What do I do inside of all of these things? How do I interpret the world around me based upon the knowledge that I have? It allows you to consider things like who is involved in the situation? What is the bigger picture? Is this proper timing to act? What are the emotions of the people inside of the thing coming b before me? Uh, do I need to submit? Is this a mountain to die upon? Is this something that I should fight for? Wisdom tells you that. When wisdom comes to an intersection, it knows which way to go. So to draw another picture of the chasm between wisdom and knowledge, I think it's probably helpful to look back at the COVID era and, and what happened. So I think there's some things that we can learn back then. When COVID landed, what happened? All of a sudden, we began to gather a whole lot of information, and, and rightly so. We're trying to figure out what in the world is this thing, and, and how do we all not die and get to come out of our houses, right? So we're getting a whole lot of information. A lot was sought after. So they're looking at, okay, how do you diagnose COVID-19? That's a bit of information. How long, how many days do you need to, to quarantine? How far do respiratory particles go indoors? How far do they go outside? How far do they go when they talk? Do they go farther when you sing? What are the rate of positive cases per county? What is the rate of mortality per age, per sex, and per part of the, the country? This is all sheer data and information that was being sought after. It was called the the science of things back then. But the rub became for some, not necessarily the data that was acquired, not necessarily the, the knowledge, that wasn't the major problem. The powder keg of society that caused us to just lose our minds became how do you interpret that knowledge or that data? The wisdom of how you take those numbers and those figures and those distances and those cases and turn it into policies and ordinances and laws. See, knowledge and science and information, if gathered in a healthy way, they're actually silent. They don't give any actions. They don't create any laws. They don't give any reactions. They're just numbers and figures and data points. It is the people who process that then then turn it into to wisdom. It's what you do with it. And it's the interpretation that caused problems. To further prove that point, me and the elders had certain people come to us with bits of information during COVID and they were absolutely furious that we ever closed for one service ever, right? That we had one service down. We were accused of being cowards, fear mongers, uh, 
victims of the man. I can't remember what else they said. It was, it was interesting. While others came to us with the exact same knowledge, the exact same data, the exact same figures, and they were furious that we had ever reopened. And they accused us of being unloving and hateful and sinful in the R word, Republicans. The statistical realities both groups had was the same, the knowledge, but the wisdom of what do I do with that knowledge was vastly different. Are you following with me? The one thing that they did agree on is they thought me and the elders were idiots though, but (laughs) they're gone and that's fine. The point is knowing what to do with information is a really big deal. You have to know what to do with certain information and knowing what to do and when is part of the definition of wisdom that Solomon is gonna use inside of this text as he jumps back into the topic once again. So I'll back out for a moment to make sure that we can see the forest through the individual trees. Solomon, the writer, has been kind of trying to help us with navigating life under the sun. And that's the term for, for life in a broken world underneath the sun where sin has broken things and where we're living waiting for a fix. Specifically, he's talking about how humans will try and grasp a hold of certain things for meaning and fulfillment and joy and to make their life more valuable in their own eyes. And his point is, hey, when you try and chase things underneath the sun to fill up your life with meaning, it's gonna be like vapor. The harder that you you grasp a hold of it, the more it's gonna slip outside of your fingers. Most of humanity will chase things that will disappear in a short time. Uh, Most of humanity will will, will think things that are strong, that are actually temporary and quite weak. He's going to teach us things that many of the things that you go for to kind of fill up your life are actually going to surprise you because they're going to empty you out. He's trying to give you wisdom about what to do with that reality in your life. And he said of wisdom already, okay, be careful how much you chase it because to a certain regard, knowledge and wisdom, the more you know, it's actually going to make you sadder. And then he warns you that no matter how much you know, it's not going to fix everything that's broken. And no matter how much you know, it's not going to insulate or, or, or get you away from problems in your, your, your life. It's not going to fix that. And it seems like he's been a little bit hard on the topic of, of wisdom. But now he aims to correct that so that we don't get the wrong idea. His point has never been that wisdom and knowledge are bad. His point is they're not ultimate and they won't save you and probably they won't do what you think they're going to do. So be a little careful. A good way in this is he's speaking to the person, a good way to think of it is he's speaking to the person who's living unwisely. He goes, hey, can I talk to you about your complete rejection of wisdom and what that means? And then he's also going to talk to the person who thinks that their wisdom is going to answer all things and fix all things. And to that person too, he goes, hey, can I talk to you about that as well? Because neither of you understand. You need a reframing. It's not going to do what you think. It's not going to go how you think it will. There are boundaries and limits to your knowledge. You need it. It's helpful. It's good. It should be celebrated. It's a good gift. It also probably can't do as much as you think that it can. So he starts out this section like a good teacher in a philosophical style asking some questions. Who is like the wise? And who is it that can interpret things in life? If you've listened to the parts of the teaching in Ecclesiastes so far, and you've picked up on maybe the the cynical parts or maybe the dark parts and lean into the the whole like, everything is worthless, we're all going to be forgotten someday, then maybe you'll jump the gun and answer the questions in a negative sense. Solomon, nobody is wise. We're all fools. Nobody knows what's up. So nobody can interpret anything. We're all idiots. We're going to return to the dirt someday. Did I get it right, Solomon? Did I answer it correctly? And Solomon doesn't dive into the specific answer, though. He just kind of moves on. 
And he says this, right? He asks two questions and then he says, hey, do you know that wisdom can literally change a man's face? It changes the hardness of his face. Isn't that interesting? The two questions without a pause are followed up by two statements. What does he mean? Wisdom can make a man's face shine. Is he speaking metaphorically? Is it spiritually? Is this allegory? Like, what, what are you saying? What, what in the world is he trying to say to us? Well, he's, he's actually speaking plainly. For a person who lives wisely, they know how to respond, which way to go, and kind of what to do. They know how to act and how to do certain things and make wise choices instead of living in kind of madness and folly. The net result of those choices, you're actually going to see it on their face. Wisdom is written on the face of those who are wise, right in their features. What, what do you mean? I'm 40 now, uh, so I don't want to throw all of you in the same boat for, for me, but, but have you ever gone back, and I'm, I'm going to make a couple assumptions that you're over 30 in this, but have you ever gone back and looked at a person's picture in high school when they were in high school, and then seen a picture of them more recently, and then go like, why does that person look 15 to 20 years older than everyone else? Like, everyone else kind of aged appropriately, and that guy, like, he aged hard. What's, what's the general theme of the person's life when that normally happens? It's unwise choices. It's normally the guy who lived too fast and loose or the girl who partied too long. And the unwise choices aged them. They're out of control madness. You could literally see it on their face. Maybe they had scars, maybe deeper wrinkles. Maybe they went, maybe they went to the, like the, the back country of Missouri and they lost some teeth because they got into some bad choices. You can see it on the face. He's just, he's just being honest. You can literally see it when you make unwise choices. It'll age you. He's making sure we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Wisdom isn't useless. It should be celebrated. It has tremendous value and effects on humanity. It can change the way you look. It can extend your life from the fact that you won't break your body down as fast. So wisdom is rare, but it sure isn't worthless. Then in verse 2, Solomon shifts to begin speaking into wisdom. It and what he's going to be angling at a lot today is wisdom under authority. How do you act wisely when you're not in charge? Because just because a person has wisdom doesn't mean that they're going to be in charge. And we all have to kind of mature and grow up. And most of you aren't born kings, so you don't have all the authority from the immediate first day. So what does it look like to, to navigate authority and, and bosses? This is why he says kings in a wise way, even if your boss or your authority is not wise and they are not good. He's shifting into this major theme of a large scale lack of submission Right? We see that everywhere, right? A large-scale lack of, uh, of, of respect, a large uh, lack of, of listening to authority. Yet Solomon says wisdom looks like keeping the king's or the authority's commands, like not being in a hurry to leave or walk away or, or dismiss the authority that's placed above you. Solomon is speaking on how authorities are set up, not by man, but by God. So the wise person will not be so quick to rebel against everyone over and above them because they understand that God places people in authority. And they realize that even if that authority figure over me is a bum, God placed that bum over me. And I, and I should probably, out of respect to the Lord, be a little careful about telling everyone to get out of my business and not tell me what to do. Now, remember, this writing is in the wisdom genre. He's not saying that every boss of everything, of every time, no matter what they say, just do it because God put them in charge. But he is speaking, hey, be careful about the hesitancy to, to listen to anyone. 
The, the thing deep in your soul and mind that hates to be told what to do and hates to submit and always leverages why they're wrong and you're right and why you do better. And like, be careful about that thing in you. God places authority structures in the world for our good, even if the world is broken. That thing that always wants to reject authorities is the same thing that was kind of uh, going around in Adam's head when he stood in front of a tree with an apple. Don't tell me what to do. I could do better on my own. Verse three has, uh, has a rendering that is not super helpful at all. They're kind of in a role. They did that in chapter seven. They do it again in chapter eight. They render this not really in what the original language intends to communicate. The text reads, don't take your stand in an evil cause. You're like, what? Just go with everything? He's not telling you if, you're awesome, if your boss tells you to, to sin, to just do it all the time. And the more accurate language would be, don't think everything that your boss tells you is evil and a sin. Be careful about taking your stand on everything. Language that, that me and Allie use and we learn to use in our home is this the mountain to die upon? Wisdom is understanding what do you fight over and what do you let go? He's saying, be careful about making everything the, the thing that you will metaphorically go nuclear over and put your flag in and say, I'm, you shall not pass. Be, be careful about it. everything isn't that. How often do we hear of a person who quits a job or they get fired and they, and they just tell you that they've moved on, but, and you ask them why and they say, well, because my boss is an idiot. He doesn't know how to do anything Right. Or my boss told me to do something that wasn't really the way that I would do it. And you're like, yeah, that's because they're your, your, your boss. That's, that, that's kind of how boss works. And, and then you maybe prod them some more questions. And, and they had you do something that maybe wasn't the greatest, but it surely wasn't sin. And the person just bounces. The point is, is an unwise person can't submit to others or pretty much anyone. They make everything ultimate and worthy of dividing, worthy of fighting, worthy of going to war. And an unwise person, here's the marker. It's why if I could have a button to blow up social media, I'd hit it immediately. An unwise person always thinks they need to speak their mind and they share way too much. No filter. An unwise person thinks that they always need to be heard. They hide it in language like valued and my voice and things like that. But the reality is they think that they are the better voice than everyone else and their voice should go above. This is the mark of a fool. Fools always ask the authority for an explanation. Fools always question everything. Fools don't know when to let anything go. And they, they don't know when to just suck it up and move on because their, their kind of complex tells them, well, I've got, to, I've got to be heard and I've got to tell you and I've got to tell you why you're wrong and why you don't see it my way. They don't understand where to draw the line in the sand and where to to move on. They are clueless. Why? Again, because a fool can't be under authority. They hide other language. I I don't know many people who's like, yeah, the fool's me. That's me. That's me. Most of the time it's like, well, I just have more insight. You know, I've just seen this before. Most of the time foolishness is is masked in wisdom, but, but but it's not. It's actually rebellion. Solomon says, it is the wise heart that knows the proper time of things. The wise heart knows when to say enough and reject authority. If your boss is causing you to move into sin, then say no. If they're just doing something differently than you would or not the way that you would love to, you have no cause to say no. Fools always have to question everything. A wise person knows when to submit. 
In this, if a person has a stiff neck against all authority, if they always have a reason why they're right and their posture is right and the other person is, is wrong, if a person always has that type of stick neck, uh, stick, stiff neck, the Bible would call them a rebellious fool. And the, the Bible is very careful about who it calls a fool. There's a proper time to act and a proper time to not. The wise person knows, hey, this is a point that I say, no, I won't go any further. The fool has no clue over that, so they just, they're just fighting everybody. I think we can say, see this playing around in our culture, an angry, outraged culture, a culture that seems to make everything worthy of battle. A culture that always wants to be heard, a culture quick to point out perceived wrongs and has no ability to tolerate anything, even though they use the word tolerance a lot. No ability to move past it, no ability to move on, no ability to just kind of suck it up and keep going. That's a culture of fools who are blind to the proper times to do things. And here's this, we're using heavy language in here, but maybe this is even a picture that the Lord has kind of been dealing with you in your heart of like, maybe you're starting to see shadows of like, man, I just always kind of like angsty and, and, and bitter. And I'm, I'm always quick to point out their side. And I've kind of hidden it behind intuition and other things. But like maybe the Lord is kind of drawing out and, and giving you a correction into wisdom today. Maybe the Lord would tell you that your positions and complaints and your knacks for seeing the things that everyone is doing wrong and pointing them out actually aren't a spiritual gift. They're actually sin. It's a lack of discernment. It is what the Bible calls foolishness. Friends, here, if we would be honest, right? Because everyone's like, I don't want that to be me. At some point, it's all of us. And I think the Lord in certain seasons when we get overly negative and overly harsh and it's the water that we're swimming in in the culture, sometimes the Lord lovingly goes, hey, that's not what I have for you. Can we come, can we come this way? And why would that be? Fools can't be salt and light. If we're gonna be the light of the world and show a savior and show redemption and show the beauty of a God who's done something beautiful and different inside and he's given us peace and he's given us discernment and we have salvation and we have a family and we have joy in our heart, then you cannot always be angry and yelling at everyone why they're an idiot. It won't work. Be careful about thinking that you have all the insight in the world if you're actually just yelling at people all the time and the spirit may just go, hey, I love you. That's kind of you. Can we walk out of that? And if that would be the case, man, I would say like even as we take communion today and as we worship on the backside, ask the Lord to help you. This is a perfect thing to tell somebody in your MC, hey, would you pray with me over this? Like, man, I've just kind of had like the bitterness train kind of getting out of control in me. And I think the Lord's just trying to correct it before it goes off the rails. I'm not really sure even what to do. Would you just pray with me about that? Like, I think that's how the family could work together well. So it, is, uh, so it is the wise who realize that there's a right and wrong time for things. And it seems to be a shift towards praising of celebration, uh, praising and celebrating wisdom here. But then comes verse seven, right? Because you're like, no one's wise. Okay, wisdom is really good. And then he kind of almost corrects back the other way again. The wise knows when, the person knows when to act. They know when to submit. They know when to refuse to act but that wisdom still has limits. Even the wisest person, he says, cannot see the future. You cannot see what's coming ahead of the road. So wisdom in this, it, it's a gift in the present, 
Yes, it has implications to your future, and some of your wisdom can make some, maybe some educated guesses into, into a couple things, but Solomon says wisdom cannot tell you what is to be. It just cannot. It cannot tell you what's going to happen later. Wisdom has no power, too, over your spirit, over judgment. Wisdom, no matter how smart you are or how much you know when to go left or right or when to act or when to submit, it cannot change the fact that you and I will come into judgment before the God of the universe at some point. Be careful. It has its limits. And wisdom cannot stop you from dying when your time has come. What's the point? Wisdom is mighty and it's a gift and it's to be valued and it's to be praised and even called out when you see other people who are wise praising the fact that the Lord has done that and it's a good gift to have around, but understand it also has its limits. There's only so much that it can do. Solomon with the wisdom, uh, with the limits of wisdom reminds us of the parable that, that Jesus spoke of in Luke 12 where a man was doing really well for himself business-wise. What did he decide to do? He decided to, to tear down his storehouses. It's the example. This guy is just, he's killing it. You know, imagine, imagine the, the, the setting. He has these dreams of someday being able to, 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 to fill his, his storehouses. If you want implications now, it's a, it's a savings that Dave Ramsey would enjoy or a proper 401k or like you've, you've kind of made it. You have some savings. You have some wisdom. He's filled them years ago. Man, I don't think I'll ever fill them. All of a sudden, he's filled them. He goes, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to tear down those. And I'm going to make bigger ones. I'm going to make bigger ones and then I'm going to fill those things. All of a sudden, he wasn't content anymore but he's going to make plans over his future. You know what? If I rip these things down, it'll be okay. I'm going to build even bigger ones, and I'm going to fill those bad boys up. He's all of a sudden beginning to gamble on his life and time. The story is a man who can't see his future, but yet he begins to play with sovereignty as if he knows better and knows all things because his aim now is to gain wealth. It's a person. It says, interestingly enough, if you want to read it this week, part of the accusation is he, is he decides to deal alone with his soul, which means, you know what's more important to me? Fill in this new storehouse rather than being rich in you, God. I'm going to chase resources and wealth in my, in my world. And it says, that very night, God says to the man in the parable, you fool, you make all these plans over your future and you don't even realize you're going to die tonight. All that fancy stuff that you acquired is going to go to someone else. My problem with you is you've ignored me, ignored your soul, and you have stored up treasure on earth where moth and rust can destroy, but you have not cared about being rich towards God. Friends, can we just say that we've maybe over-elevated our hand or our play on grace to where we think nothing matters? All of a sudden, he didn't care about God. He didn't care about righteousness. He didn't care about uh, the the Lord or anything else. I'm just going to make my money. I'm going to fill my storehouse. He goes, you're going to die, and and you, you don't even know. Some have heard this parable and thought it sounded harsh, but it deals again with a person who thinks that they can control more than they actually can. And in their thoughts of I can control more than I can, they begin to ignore faith in the Lord. He lived for his own gain and ignored God. Mind you, here's the hard part about this. This person that the Bible calls a fool, the world would call a genius. You're a business mogul. Would you mentor me? Will you teach me how to do that? Can you, can, you make, can you give me five best practices so I can do it? The part of our flesh wants to deeply do everything that person does, and the Bible goes, that's a fool. Don't chase that guy. Don't do what he did. Again, he thought he had control over more than he actually did. There's a limit of what your wisdom can do. What are the other limits of wisdom that men and women need to face? 
well, earthly wisdom will never be able to give us the full picture of all things. No matter how much you know, you're not gonna know it all. Earthly wisdom will not let you know the mystery of God fully or the mystery of why God does what he does in creation. We see this because Solomon steps back and he starts mentioning several examples where he's like, I don't get that. I don't get that. I think that's messed up. I don't understand that. He goes, you know what? I, I look around and I begin to see these things. I've seen a wicked man buried. And that guy in his life, he came in and out of the temple, right? In and out of the church all the time. But people gathered around him when he's gone and celebrated him. What's he talking about? He goes, okay, it's hard for me to understand. There's a wicked dude. Everyone knows he was wicked. They celebrated him even when he came into church knowing that he was wicked. So they celebrated wickedness in his life in real time. And now we're at his funeral and you're celebrating like he's a good man when you all know he's an evil fool. I don't understand why people do that. He goes, I, I, I don't get this thing under the sun. This is vanity. He says, I, I've seen also a sentence for evil deeds not get executed speedily. Why? Because the people around are just as evil as the person who committed the crime. So I've seen some people do evil things. Seemingly, they get away with murder and they're allowed to do 100 more evil things. And I think in my mind, why in the world does God let this happen? Why does God prolong the life of the evil person? Why does God prosper the evil person? Why are they allowed to go and do and seemingly crush it in life? I don't, I don't understand why the Lord would let this happen. He says, I've seen a wicked man get treated according to the deeds of righteousness. You gotta let your mind set on that. L- literally, there's this upside down part of the world where an evil, horrible man gets treated as if they were righteous while simultaneously, a righteous man who stands upright against the weight of the world ends up gets, getting treated as if he's the wicked one. He says it seems backwards. How do wicked men thrive? Why do good men get crushed? This is vanity. It doesn't make sense. It shouldn't be this way. This is a lament. I don't understand life under the sun. Like good, good deeds can maybe get you nothing. And, and, and maybe good deeds actually hurt you on, on this side of eternity. He goes, okay. If we begin to look at these things too much and think that we can know it all, what's gonna happen is we're gonna end up getting really angry with God. Why? Because in the short term, it seems like God is rewarding wickedness and crushing righteousness. And our heart's gonna go, it seems like you're unfair. Like just from my earthly perspective, and that's the the catch, from your earthly perspective. So the tension here, Solomon is placing in front of us, this tension to wrestle with wisdom helps us see how to live, how to react, how to respond, how to submit. It can change your life for good. It can teach you this timing of certain things, change the way your face looks and make it even shine. But with all that wisdom, if we miss our station and our place, much like the person who always goes around and questions their earthly boss, you ready? You're gonna begin to kind of puff up your chest and question the God of the universe. Why did you? In my earthly wisdom, in, in all the knowledge that I have attained in my 23 years, oh God, why did you, I don't have 23, in my 40 years, right? I don't know how much your number is. Why did you do that? Saying, be careful. We'll get frustrated. And if we begin to think that our earthly wisdom has showed us more than it actually has, we'll shake an angry fist at God and go, It just seems like you are either incompetent or cruel, and I don't get you. Accusing him of being evil or wrong, or go back to the boss's example, worthy of leaving. 
quick to leave the presence, of, the presence of the true authority because his actions don't line up with your limited wisdom even though he has unlimited wisdom. Are, are, you, are you feeling the tension of what he's saying here? Be careful. There, there's a warning wrapped up in this. Do not confuse earthly wisdom with God's wisdom. Don't become the fool by thinking you, the clay, uh, can understand the full vision of the potter. Solomon reminds us, yes, under the sun, evil seems to go unchecked and righteousness seems to, to kind of go challenged and punished all the time and you don't really get it. But in the end, he says, it will go well with those who fear God. Part of this is, is, is you're not looking out a long enough distance in the future. Yes, it seems like they're getting away with murder. No one gets away with anything eternally. It will not go well for the wicked eternally. They will come to meet the judge who will not take a bribe. Other people are evil as well and they'll let people get a pass. God will not do this. Wisdom gives us insight into the earthly timing of things, but it will not reveal why God does things here and now, but we get the promise. All people would be judged someday. No one gets away with anything. God is true and he will judge according to his righteousness. So it comes full circle. Don't spend your days trying to boss God around. Don't shake a fist trying at God, trying to micromanage his ways. It's gonna steal your joy. Instead, Solomon says, I commend to you joy. He's the wisest guy ever, and this is just funny to me. He's building this case. It won't do what you think and all of this. What's your recommendation, Solomon? Joy, have some good food, enjoy people. Enjoy what's in front of you. That's what I recommend. Okay, that's a little simpler than I thought what you were going to tell me was. This point is be careful. If you're micromanaging all things and telling God, you're going you're to have robbed even the blessings that are right in front of you. Enjoy what the Lord has put in front of you now, knowing even if it's a little, you have an eternal promise to you that, that that's beautiful and you can't even understand how good it's going to be. This is what faith is. If you begin to judge God according to what you see now, then your faith is little. And the play in this is, Lord, help increase my faith. If I'm frustrated with you, if, if I'm kind of uh, at odds with you over what you've done, help increase my faith to believe that you know more than I do and that you're good no matter what, even if I can't see it now. This is the play. In understanding the wisdom of God, and that his way and plane of thinking is not the same of ours. I heard a friend of mine speak on this not long ago, and I, th I think it fits well. What is one of the hardest things that causes us to question the Lord? I think it's death. Especially if someone that you love dies early. They're taken too soon. They had so many years left. There's so many things that were undone. In our hearts, in the moment when someone that we care about or know dies, there's this angst in us of like, why God? Why? And death hurts and it stings and it crushes us at certain points. But so we're only looking at the immediate feeling of what's happened right at the moment. But we need to step back a little bit and understand what death actually is. So if you look at the creation account, God created and there was no death. There was a perfect creation living in communion with God. Nothing was broken. There was no sin. There was no marring of culture by, by all the evil deeds around. But then when sin comes into the world, God invents death and puts it into the equation. You're like, I don't understand why you did that. Here's the thing. What if he didn't though? If you begin to look at things from a longer perspective, if death wasn't invented, that means the brokenness that you and I feel now would have no end date. The internal struggle, like let's out each other. There's things you don't like about yourself. And I'm not just talking about the way you look in a mirror. 
Like there's things that I'm not as far as I used to. And, and we've talked about, uh, man, there's certain impulse controls that are hard for me to deal with. And, and I thought I'd be more wise. And I thought I'd be nicer to my kids. And I, and I thought I'd have more together. And I, I thought I'd overcome this. There's parts of our life that are always struggling with, why am I so far behind the curve? And you feel the pain of what you do and you feel the pain of a broken world. If there was no death, that would be your forever. Uh, the example, there's a book called Death by Living. So imagine if you're running and the coach, like you're running laps and you don't know if you can do it anymore. And the coach sits back with his whistle and goes, don't worry, you're just doing this forever. You can never stop. In ways like that, death is actually a gift, even though if we can't see it, it hurts crazy bad now. But if there was no death, there'd be no redemption and no putting together of all things underneath the sun. So there's a way that we have to begin to trust God. Man, I can't see it all. I can't see everything that's happening and things do hurt. And man, I don't understand why, but I'm gonna need you to do that like revelation, wiping away the tears a whole lot because I've cried a lot and I don't know why things are, are the way they are. There's a trusting of the Lord in this. I can't see what you see. Help me trust you. And when I don't know how, give me more faith because I'm getting a little bit angry and I don't know why. I'm, my, my station thinks it's bigger than it is. Help me. Help me, Lord. And the closing in verse 16 and 17 seem to be the wrapping up and Solomon confesses here. I set my heart to know wisdom. I put too high of an expectation of what it could do for me. And it ended up taking sleep from me. What are you talk, was he talking about when, when he's talking about there's no sleep before my eyes? It's an endless chasing with no resolution and no rest. I found no conclusion, no end. My consistent chasing of wisdom because I thought it was gonna fix things, I could just never stop. If you're looking back at the book of Hebrews, remember the beauty of Jesus when they're going, he's the only priest that could sit down and rest. Solomon is kind of pointing, hey, there's no rest for me. No rest, no matter uh, how much I searched, no matter how much wisdom I gained, I couldn't find out everything or understand everything because I'm not God. Even though I'm a wise man, I cannot know everything under the sun. There's things you and I aren't going to know. It's part of the definition of faith. Trusting the Lord even when you don't see why things are the way that they are and understanding there's a mystery to God and a wisdom to God that you and I just, we don't have. It's not telling you, hey, be fools. Don't think about anything heavily. Be careful about your knowledge. The call on this text is to see yourself and myself more clearly from the topic of wisdom. Do you believe that you're wise? From a biblical standpoint, and if you do, do you know where you got that wisdom from? Because Proverbs tells us wisdom comes from the Lord and it's available to those to ask and seek the Lord and seek his face and seek his story. Wisdom, the, the Proverbs tells us wisdom's out on the streets. You just gotta call for it. God, give me your wisdom. Father of all creation, who's the source of wisdom, will you show me the ways of the world that I can see? Will you help increase my wisdom and then increase my faith when I don't understand all things? Help me to fear the Lord properly because as it says, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What's that mean, fear of the Lord? It's not a Halloween, terrified he's gonna crush me. It's a reverence. I'm not you and you're not me, thank God. Right? It, it, it's a reverence that understands my station before God and it walks according in reverence. This is a thing that our world has lost in the flattening of all things. We don't know stations and we don't know reverence anymore. We have to lose that if we wanna walk in the fear of the Lord. Solomon again shares, wisdom will not save you.
beauty as God will. So don't, you don't have to seek wisdom to try and save you. Seek the face of the Lord. He can show you what you need. He can give you wisdom to learn how to, how to navigate the, the broken world around you. He can help you live in uprightness and trust him even when you don't understand. It's an unpopular thing in our age, but Solomon is gearing towards the end, the end of his life, the end of also the book, more specifically the end of all of our lives, which is judgment. Right? Be careful not to make yourself the judge over all creation. There is a judge and it's not you and it's not me. The current age is passing away. Do you know what won't though? The judgment that comes for every man and woman. Judgment will not go away. It comes for all. The fool ignores this even while shaking a fist at God for it and the wise live in light of it. Ecclesiastes at the end, we're beginning to kind of show our hand. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 through 14. How does the book end? The end of the matter. All has been heard. And what is the end? This is what I've come up with. He says, fear God and keep his commands for this is the whole duty of man. You want advice, you want wisdom, fear God, keep his commands. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The gift that we have from God as a savior to stand in our place for judgment. A redeemer whose work won't fade. He will not get overturned. He will not get tired of us. And then we have the beauty of instruction of wisdom for how to walk under the sun until our king returns. The hope and the prayer is that Ecclesiastes has been a good help to, to kind of form you and call you out of like the, the world's untethered pursuit of, of chasing wind and maybe that it's shown you a couple things that you're chasing after and, and helped you free you from those things and then brought you closer to the understanding of the redemption you have in God, the wisdom available to you and the peace that's available with that. That's the hope. We're gonna take communion today on the backside of this. Band, you guys can come back up. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 says this, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we end, we'll have about three songs and you can come up and take communion. You don't have to be a member here. Just your faith needs to be in Christ in order to take. But here's the play. Ask the Lord, hey, will you help me with a proper understanding of this fear of you and reverence towards you? Will you help me if angst or bitterness or just kind of frustration is kind of overpowered things? Will you let me see the beauty of who you are and let me see that Jesus is the only one that brings any of that about? That's why every week when people are like, is it redundant? Or you do the same thing every time. What are you doing? You take the bread and you're remembering it's your body and your blood. This is the body of Christ. This is the blood of Christ for you. Your wisdom doesn't secure this. Your, your voting habits, your, your kind of earned righteousness, don't get any of it. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. And there's help along the way in the middle of it. Praise that we would wrestle according. Father, help us. Make us wise, not so we can puff up our chest that we're better than other people, but how will we be the light of the world if we're fools who are angry? And how will it empty us out if we're constantly mad and don't know how to submit? Lord, teach us to be wise. Teach us to fear you. Teach us to walk into the submission of the people that we need to. And teach us the wisdom of when to draw the line. That's the hope in this. Would you stand with me?